0: It's good to be with you guys this morning. It's been a joy to worship together with you and to pray and to do those simple things the church has been doing since the first century, and we're going to do the other things they used to do, and this is open to the Word of God, so I'd like you to do that, if you would, 1 Timothy chapter 1, entitled our message series, which is through First and 2 Timothy and Titus, Instructions for the Church for Teaching, Leading, and Equipping. We'll be going verse by verse through these passages, as is our habit This is our fourth time, our fourth stop in our new study, Instructions for the Church. And so, I'd like you to open your Bibles there to verse 1, and we'll read 1 and 2 as we continue to open up and see what the Lord would have us to know. As we mentioned before, it's important to do this early in your study so that you understand who the writer was, who the recipient was, what's going on in both of their lives, and in the church. That's the only way you can truly understand what the Word of God is saying to you what it says, what it means by what it says, and how that applies. And so we're going to do that today. Verse 1, reading with me, I'll read in the New American Standard. You can read in whatever copy that you read every day and memorize, and I'll give you verse cues, and we'll stay together. Verse 1, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. Verse 2, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. let stop right there. We spent our first two installments really looking at the Apostle Paul. If you have been with us for a while, you know a number of things about him as we've gone through a number of his epistles. But we took some time last time to get to know him a little bit better. And then a more recent time together, we began our overview of Timothy in order to get a t- context in which to understand this letter. And just to sum that up, what we saw, just to catch you up, Three things that really stand out about Timothy. Number one, Timothy had a faithful and true godly heritage in his own family. Biblical teaching, right from an early age, and people who had recognized that he was a godly young man, even as a young man. Acts 16.1 tells us a little bit about Timothy as Paul had gone to uh, Derbe and Lystra. And a disciple was there, it says, named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. So a very faithful young man, someone uh, Paul identified early. Because of Paul's ministry, we saw Timothy came to faith, that of his mother and grandmother as well, but he had been in the Word and instructed in the Word from an early age. And Number two, we saw, the second thing we saw last time, Timothy was a devoted and consistent co-worker and assistant to Paul. In fact, Paul said things about Timothy he didn't say about anyone else. Paul regarded Timothy as one of his most trustworthy, dedicated associates, uh, he was one to whom he could assign difficult tasks, and we saw some of those last time where he would send Timothy to a church that was having a lot of trouble with total confidence. He trusted Timothy. He had great faith in his godliness. He had great faith in his spirituality and his maturity. He said to this young man, No one else is of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. Everyone else seeks after their own interests, as we saw in Philippians chapter 2, verse 20. And that's a remarkable thing to say about someone as, as uh, invested in the churches and planting churches and evangelism as Paul was to say that about Timothy. Very encouraging, very remarkable. And there were many other places we saw in the New Testament that articulate the same kinds of trust placed in him. We looked at 1 Corinthians 4, we looked at Thessalonians, we looked at Acts, we looked at Colossians last time. We won't go back there again. And then thirdly, in regard to his personality and his temperament, we saw last time, equally striking I think, really in the middle of Paul's uh, confidence, his commendations about him is Timothy's apparent timidity and his need for encouragement. Paul encourages and admonishes Timothy throughout the letters, which gives us numerous clues as to the nature of this lack of confidence. And as we said last time and looked at a few places, Timothy's reticence may likely have come from a realistic appraisal of how difficult the situation was that he had to deal with. And if that's the case, that's not a bad thing, right? Coming into a new job, coming into a new situation with a realistic appraisal of your own ability and how difficult the situation is is not a bad thing. And so Timothy had to deal with some hard things and maybe his reticence was connected to that. Maybe too, he was easily discouraged as a younger man. And then as he matured, we saw how he was able to overcome some of that tendency to put too much weight in what others would say about him or his own insecurity we saw last time. Timothy was actually martyred in Ephesus uh, by a crowd that he had addressed directly about worship of idols. And so following straight in Paul's footsteps sounds like a a story right out of Paul's life. And so we saw that he was able to overcome some of that. But again, I think it's just a great reminder as we think even about the difficulties Timothy may have had, uh, that God uses imperfect people. He uses you wherever you are as you're willing to go and be used by him. Uh, He's willing to put you to work, and that was certainly evident in Timothy's life. Timothy was with Paul for up to about 20 years from the time of his conversion as a man in his late teens to the time of about 35 years of age when he's receiving this letter. And so all that time he's been with Paul in some kind of ministry with the exception of the time that he sort of seems to disappear during Paul's first imprisonment and Paul will talk about that and we'll see some of that later. Now look at verse 2 if you would. It, It is addressed and we talked about how ancient letters were addressed. Right away you give the author, which is nice, uh, when we, give, we get a modern letter, we have to look to the bottom and see who wrote it to us to see if we need to give it any credence or whether we can ignore some of it. And so it's nice in ancient times, this is from Paul and this is to Timothy, so we saw that. So verse 2 says, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. That's a great thing to say about someone. And we pointed out just obviously, when we combine what we know about Paul's life and his efforts in the Great Commission to go and make disciples and teach them everything that Jesus had taught him, we saw that it should be a major goal for every believer to desire to reproduce spiritual children. Paul says of Timothy, he's my true child in the faith. And of course, the first thing we think about is our own physical children. But obviously, if you read the Word of God, we're supposed to reproduce in our physical children godliness. They're to be brought up as disciples to come to faith and to walk in holiness. That's the job that parents have like Lois and Eunice did with Timothy. In fact, what we're gonna see in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 is that you can't even serve in church leadership if you don't accomplish that. If your kids walk in dissipation, if they walk in rebellion, you can't serve the church. But what Paul's expressing here in his identification of Timothy is something else altogether. You and I are to reproduce ourselves, here it is, over and over again in the lives of other people. That's the issue. That is to bring them to Christ then and to nurture them at, to maturity in Christ, teaching them to observe, as we see five times in the Gospels, everything I've commanded you, Matthew 28, just so clear. And we saw in 2 Timothy 2:2, Paul identifies exactly what that looks like. In 2 Timothy 2:1, he says, "You, therefore, my son," so that's a, quite the compliment. "Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus." Verse two, the things which you marked us have heard. From me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So, in that passage, Paul, we'll see this more in depth as we get there, but Paul gives Timothy instructions. Here it is, to follow the same sequence in responsibility that he was shown in discipling other people. It was both a compliment and a mandate. It was a compliment in saying, You're my son, be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus, just obviously in that walk that you're walking, continue to strengthen yourself there. And then, what you saw me do with you, do with other people. Paul considered Timothy a faithful man. He instructed him to use the example Paul had, to, had set to duplicate himself with other men he would identify. We're supposed to be reproducing ourselves. I don't think we can look at the New Testament and think anything else. We should be in the process of building up another generation of reproducing believers to follow us. Obviously, we know Paul had a lot of things going on in his life. He was evangelizing both in the synagogue, in the Gentile communities. Paul was involved in the planting, the building up of churches. He was busy, just like you and I are. He has many things that take up his time, a lot of things that he has to spend time doing. But he was also involved in this matter of discipling individuals to maturity. His desire was, and our desire should be by example as we read these things, because that's why they're recorded for us, to bring many to the place where he could say to them, as he said to Timothy, you are my genuine child in the faith. And we looked at a number of passages where Paul actually addresses the church as his children, as their spiritual father. So it's not uncommon language for Paul to use this, but specifically with Timothy, I think it's important that we see what that outcome is supposed to look like. It's supposed to produce a replica. You're my reproduction, Paul says to Timothy. You bear my image and character and in ministry. Christ-like character, obviously. So he says, my true child in the faith, and that adjective true is just the Greek word, nasios, genuine, sincere, is where we get our word nascent. There were qualities about Timothy that proved his identity. In other words, there were things that Timothy did. It wasn't just an arbitrary title that he assigned to this young man. It's not a subjective way to approach ministry. It's not, well, he is godly from your perspective, there are some objective things that have to be true there. And we talked about last time that there are some clues, and we're going to look at that. And it wasn't that Timothy was perfect. No one is. Paul wasn't perfect. Paul identified a number of his places where he struggled. We saw at the end of Second Corinthians where Paul was given a thorn in the flesh. Why? To keep him humble, because he'd spent so much time with the Lord, even in the third heaven for a short time. He was given some things to keep his pride in check. So we understand people are not perfect, and we're not trying to reproduce that imperfections. And Timothy wasn't perfect either. And we looked at some of those places where Timothy struggled. It's just that Timothy continued in the things that he learned. That's the thing. And that he heard and that he'd seen in Paul. And what a joy that must have been for Paul. What a joy it is to do this, to be able to say to someone, you know, like he said to the Corinthians, I want you to be like me, he said to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 4. So I'm sending Timothy because he's exactly like me, and he'll show you what that looks like. That's a lot of confidence, isn't it? To spend a lot of time with someone, to pour into them, to see that begin to build in their life, and they take on that independence, knowing Christ and growing in Christ on their own. So what we want to see with our children as they grow. They have a faith that's pleasing to us, and as they get older, they develop a faith that's pleasing to the Lord, and we, we want to encourage that and see that flourish. And so it's a wonderful thing to think about that. As we said last time we would do, there's some clues to what it looks like to reproduce a true child in the faith. And we've seen, uh, seen some of these words already, and so they won't be, they won't be uh, new to you. But it's not a subjective experience. We're not looking at just somebody saying, yeah, they're, they're a true child in the faith. They have to line up with what the Scripture says. And so we're going to look at some of those things because I think they'll be helpful. And if we know anything about the Apostle Paul, we know what he said was true. So if he said that about Timothy, we know it was true. And then he says in verse 2, he says, To Timothy my true child, and he says, in the faith. And we just got to be obvious, I guess, the first mark of a true child in the faith has to be that the individual must be born again. He's a recipient of saving faith. He's repented and come to faith. And So that's just the first stop. That obviously has to be the case, although throughout, I think, church history and certainly in the modern church, we have many people in church leadership, I think, that aren't born again at all. And it's certainly possible to do that. You can play the part and do those things, and we see this all the time, uh, worship leaders and pastors who for a long time pastor huge churches and then they all of a sudden say, well, I don't believe this anymore. Well, what, what is that exactly? Well, that's false profession. That's what that is. That you can make your living doing something and saying certain things and fool a lot of people. But when it comes right down to it, you were never converted. And so it's important, I think, to understand true saving faith has got to be there. And Paul had a lot to say about false faith, about false professions. He endured a lot of hardship as a result of people that fit that description. Because there were, unquestionably, some whose faith was not legitimate. In 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, you remember this as we studied it a number of years ago. After continued fruit of rebellion, a little concern, a little, a very little concern with holiness, Paul says to some in the church, remember he says, test yourselves and see if you're in the faith. So he's been teaching them and teaching them, many of them still rebelling, many of them still giving them a hard time, not walking in faith, following false teachers. We saw all of this. And so he finally just says, listen, test yourself, see if you're in the faith. Examine yourself. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? So some hard questions to ask a church, isn't it? Hard questions to ask yourself. Are you in the faith? It's not subjective. There are many objective things that have to be true to show that you're in the faith. Because false faith, false profession of faith, unchanged life, claiming Christ, Paul dealt with this all the time. In fact, some say, you know, I prayed a prayer, an emotional prayer at this certain time, and I walked an aisle to the altar. But, beloved, that by itself is not a valid basis on which to verify your spiritual condition, some historical event that occurred sometime in your past. Uh, Some may say, I've been in church a long time. uh, I'm very faithful, and I like coming to church. But, again, that by itself is not a valid basis on which to verify a spiritual condition. Uh, Some may say, I really love God. I love Jesus. Uh, I, I get really emotional during worship time. Again, not a valid reason to say or verify your spiritual condition. Some may say, you know, I live a good life. I do the right things. I give a lot, I give a lot to good causes. I give a lot to, to the church. But again, those kinds of things are not by themselves valid in which to verify your spiritual condition. Those who are apostate, not redeemed, conform so that they're, no one really suspects their real condition. They say things and do things, like Jesus addressed this issue in Matthew 7, 21. People say, Lord, Lord, they call him by the right name. Uh, Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do these other things in your name? So they do the right things, and it looks like they're doing church things. But then at the end of that, what does he say? I don't know you. Depart from me, you workers of the word lawlessness, which is apostate. Because it all comes down to how you live your life. What does the life look like? Does it reflect that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because you can say all kinds of things, but then that relationship may not be there. You can claim all kinds of things, as we just looked at, but the relationship is absent. Luke 13, 24, Jesus addressed it again. He says, come through the narrow gate, for many miss it. But they'll say, we ate with you in the square. Did we not? Did we not listen to you teach? And what does he say at the end? Depart from me those who work lawlessness. So they understood, and they were there when Jesus did miracles, and they felt like they were part of the crowd, and they did things for one reason or another. But again, they looked the part, but they weren't the part. And we saw some time ago out of the book of Hebrews, not everyone has true faith. The Apostle Paul attempted to pour his life into lots of people. and Last week, we looked at a number of examples where the Apostle Paul poured his life into someone, and they weren't truly saved, and then betrayed him or did harm to him. And so we see that. It's not unusual. So how can we know the true spiritual condition of those we desire to disciple, even in our own family? Well, the Bible's not silent about that. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 12, as the Bible explains the Bible and, and comparing Scripture with Scripture, we can, we can look right here and see what it looks like to be a child in the faith or, or not to be a child in the faith. In chapter 6, verse 1, and you can follow me along there on the screen or look it up if you'd like to make some notes, but it helps us, I think, to illustrate this as our current passage, and we're gonna touch on this again, I think, later. But verse 1 says, therefore, as he talks to the church, the writer says, therefore, leaving the elementary teachings about Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of instructions about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. So what's he saying here? So he's talking about people who are on that margin around the assembly, and he's saying, The question I think we need to ask, if you're looking to see if it's a true regeneration, if someone's truly a child, truly a child of the faith, the question we have to ask is, is the inventory they're taking too simple? When it comes right down to it, do they only know the simple stuff, not the mature stuff? Just the very basics after all this time. So they may be in church a long time and claim to be in Christ a long time. So how can you tell it's just the basics? Well, no witnessing. You don't regularly share the gospel. And remember, saying praise God in front of somebody, God's blessed me in front of somebody. It's not the gospel. Giving the gospel to someone is telling about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, which is the substitution for us on the cross, and making sure people understand the good news after they understand the bad news. But you won't see that in the simple stuff. Great commission stuff. uh, Leading others to Jesus. You won't see obedience. The application of biblical principles in ever-increasing measure. Of maturity to filter the life. That's absent because they don't know what the Bible says. No desire to stretch and grow in depth and in understanding. Always something simple, always something easy, always something that tickles the ears, makes us feel good. See, those are kinds of things do not lend themselves to a true salvation experience. These Jews were the subject here. They fall into this category. They're just on the fringe. They're just talking about basics, repentance, Oh, you know the story about dead works and, and, and you know the story about the resurrection of the dead and all that. You know the basics. It was all part of the, the, the very foundation, see, but you've got to go beyond that, verse 2 says, and we will, Lord willing, Paul says. You've got to get beyond that. You've got to leave the basics behind and move on to the fullness of New Testament teaching. Exegetical, expository, verse by verse, literal, historical, grammatical context, comparing Scripture with Scripture. What does the Bible say let's begin to assimilate it. Let's get into the deep stuff and understand what we, who we are in Christ, understand what he expects from us, and all those kinds of things. Those are absent. So as you're looking at someone and you're going to d- disciple them, if these things are absent, there's a question mark there. And, and, and that maturity, of course, is one of the purposes of sound doctrine and biblical teaching. That's what happens when you go somewhere and you get biblical teaching regularly, you begin to grow. And Paul wanted to do that with the Corinthians, but he told them he couldn't yet. Do you remember 1 Corinthians 3, 1? He says to them, 1 Corinthians 3.1, he says this, he says, um, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, so you weren't acting as mature believers, he says, I wanted to talk to you as a spiritual man, but as to men of flesh. So acting in such a way outside of the, of the bounds of church that they even acted like they were unredeemed, acting like the world, so they're one way in church and just like the world everywhere else. Or as infants, he says in Christ, shallow and mature and immature, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you are not yet able to receive it. I gave you milk to drink after all this time. So Paul was there for 18 months, gone from the church. He's writing a letter. This is the third one. He says, even now I can't do it. You're not yet able, for you are still fleshly, he says. You're still that way. Now, for since there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly, or are you not walking like mere men? He says, you're either not born again, or you're extremely immature, because these things are still the case in your life. So take inventory. Are they still in, in the basics after all this time? Is it still just milk from the Word? Because if that's the case, it's difficult to make the case for truly being born again. So the writer says, and this we will do if God permits. And now here's the first warning. It's, a danger, it's dangerous to be on this fringe, and so The writer is writing to the church and he says, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened. So now we're going to get some specifics because people will say, Well, you know, I was there, and, and, and it sounds a lot like those passages we just looked at in Matthew 7 and Luke 13. You know, I was there, I was doing the thing, you know. For the case of those who have once been enlightened, that means they understand what's expected. They can be in the church, they can understand what's expected what they should do. They understand that. They understand the gospel. They understand that God came into the world in the form of Jesus, born in Bethlehem, of a Virgin Mary, lived a perfect life, died a substitutionary death, and rose three days later. You can understand all those basics. Ascended into heaven, someday going to come again. They understand the gospel. They understand He died for their sins. They understand that. They've been enlightened. That's just the basic stuff, see. And then it says, and have tasted the heavenly gift. In other words, That heavenly gift is Jesus, of course, that gift of God's Son, the immeasurable gift uh, given to us. They've had a taste of that. In other words, they can sing the songs. They get emotional because they can taste the flavor of the reality of Jesus from those true believers that are around them. They can can sample that. They they understand that's real. And it says, and may partakers of the Holy Spirit. What's that mean? In a sense that they've seen the work of the Spirit. In other words, um, they, they may know people who've been changed. They may know somebody who came out of this certain background and came to faith and completely, 180 degrees, their life has never been the same and they've seen them walk on from there, changed. In the first century, it would be like the crowds that ate the food that Jesus created, like the crowds that watched the miracles uh, that Jesus did by the power of the Spirit. In Luke 13, again, you, you, you taught in our streets. We, we ate with you. See, they participated. They participated. And then verse 5 it says, and have tasted the good word of the God and the power of the age to come. And the good word of God is just, they've heard it preached, it resonated with them. So you can be, you can be not born again and you can hear somebody speak and the good word of God can resonate with you, it can move you. Uh, maybe they have some passages underlined in their Bible. Maybe once in a while they post a verse on social media. They've been exposed to its power. They understand that it's there. And, which is just a glimpse of the true church worshiping and serving together, maybe people they know uh, that are an example to them and Jesus rules their life, They, they can tell that they've tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. So you're thinking about discipling someone, you've got to take a look at this. Everything points to a kingdom where Jesus will physically rule on earth. They see people who look forward to that. That is really their hope because that's the hope of a truly born again person is what? That kingdom where Jesus rules. We long for that, don't we? We desire very much for Jesus to come and rule, set everything right, especially in this type of of government we're in now. We just want all that stuff to be fixed. We're just tired of having to to rail against wrong all the time. We look forward to that. So people understand that. Obedience and miracles when Jesus comes will be commonplace. So these first century friends, they'd actually seen for themselves Jesus' miracles. They saw the disciples' dedication, abandoning their life for his. Later, the apostles did signs in front of them to verify the message, verify the messenger. They were exposed to that reality. They saw all of that. It happened in their presence, just like the faithfulness and love and selflessness happen in the presence of people now as they look at people who are truly born again. So the writer says they've seen these things. They've heard it all. They've been informed by it all. They understand all of this. They understand the gospel. They understand the power of Jesus. They understand the power of the Spirit. They understand the power of the Word. They've had a glimpse of the power of the age to come. They understand that. But when you take inventory, where are they? Have they repented? Because Matthew 7, Luke 13, again, Jesus calls them workers of lawlessness. They understand all of that stuff, see. But they're workers of lawlessness because nothing's changed really on the inside. There's been no response that follows over time. They've seen it all. They've been, it's been in their experience. But they're on the fringe And that's illustrated by, it's just very basic stuff. And then verse 6 says this. So they've seen all that, they've tasted the good word of the Lord, they've been partakers of the Holy Spirit, and then have fallen away. That's what we see a lot, don't we? We see it maybe in our own family, we see it certainly in in, uh, professional people who are leading churches, and all of a sudden they they depart. What's going on there? It's impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. The inventory will show whether they fail the test or not. If they reject when they have full understanding, it's impossible to be saved because there isn't any more new information see. Somebody who's kind of walked along with the church on the fringe for a long period of time kind of doing churchy things and saying churchy things and and it looks like they're part of the whole thing and then all of a sudden they decide they're not walking there again. Listen, beloved. It's impossible to bring them to repentance. Why? Because there's no new information anymore. There's no man, I need to be born again. I'm lost. They already understand all of that, and they've rejected it. And they're not going to do it. And that fringe position is a very precarious place to be when they understand it, and they like being disobedient. And they like being worldly. And they won't embrace Jesus Christ authentically. So as you're thinking about discipling, you're thinking about building in, you've got to ask the right questions. The writer says to those in the church, it's impossible to bring you to repentance. And here's the word, apostate. And that's an Old Testament word, and it means lawless. And mark this, beloved, a person who practices lawlessness, an apostate, is not a person who rejects the truth because he doesn't understand it. An apostate is someone who rejects the truth because he does understand it. See. And Paul dealt with this all the time, people who seemed to be something that they were not. And as we've seen, those who practice lawlessness, Matthew 7.23, those who are evil doers Luke 13.27, both of those groups know the right names for Jesus. They know what should be done in the church. They know about ministries of the church. They may even do ministries of the church, but they've just played the game on the fringe. And the writer of Hebrews takes the inventory and shows us how, as we look, to duplicate ourselves to take that inventory. And as we've noted several times, there are only two kinds of people in church. Number one, people who have believed and are authentic Christians and are growing in sanctification and in the wisdom and knowledge of Christ and two, people who have not believed but understand to one degree or another, and they're the ones being referred to here. And this second group is where most of the trouble comes from. And Paul asked the Corinthians to take inventory, and he said to Timothy, he's my true son in the faith, so which group are they in? You want to see what it looks like to duplicate me? I'm going to send Timothy there. Now examine yourself and see if you're in the faith. Which group are you in? If they're in the second group, they're in serious danger. Why? What are the writers going to tell us? Because if they fall away, they can't be renewed again to repentance because there's no new information that can be added to entice them. They fall away having full understanding but never coming to repentance and redemption. And that happens a lot, beloved, especially in churches that don't give the true gospel. Gospel is always about repentance. But people are not going to repent if they don't have the bad news first. Christ is not given to make your life better. In fact, he said, if they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. So here's the thing. If you're not seeing much persecution, there might not be much similarity. That might be the problem. So people will say, sometimes when I teach like this, people will say, well, that's really judgmental of you. I mean, you're judging somebody's salvation. Well, beloved, as I read the New Testament, as I understand how leadership is supposed to work and how you're supposed to invest yourself and disciple people, you have to ask these questions. The New Testament is asking these questions too. The New Testament says to the church, Paul says, examine yourself and see if you're in the faith. These are people who are regularly attending. I'm not sure you're truly born again. Why? Because the fruit of your life isn't resonating with being born again. It's resonating with the world and fleshly men. Now, this is a very telling illustration. And we're going to get to the last part of this this passage in Hebrews. And it has a lot to do with Jesus' parable of the sower and the seed. This is happening in the church all the time. And I think you'll see this. As we look at it, two groups we just mentioned. Now, verse 7 says this Hebrews 6 7 For the ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it, brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. Let's pause right there and let's talk about that. The rain is biblical teaching, and it comes often in the church, like rain, and it hits the ground, and it up comes the appropriate vegetation. It's useful. Beneficial to others in the church. It's the fruit of righteousness, servanthood, discernment, sound doctrine, humility. These are true believers. The rain falls on them, they begin to grow. That's that first group. These are people who are blessed with salvation. According to our passage, you can tell that these are truly born-again folk because God's richest blessing has come on them. Now look at verse 8, and we're going to see the difference. But if it yields thorns and thistles... It's worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. Now mark it. It's the same rain that falls, but what soil does it land on, and what does it yield? So both are in the church. Both are receiving the same teaching, but it doesn't fall on good soil. That's the second group. The gospel, faithful teaching, calling to repentance, self-evaluation, servanthood, sound doctrine, discernment, falls on bad soil. But you can't tell at first. See, because when crops first start coming up, you're uncertain exactly what it is, right? You've ever had a garden, you know, you plant the seeds and then things start popping up. and You're like, I don't want to pull that. That might be like my carrot, you know, but then you find out later it's a weed. And then you're you're like, why didn't I, why didn't I do that? That's how it works. You don't really understand which is which, but when you see the fruit, what does it yield? Here it says it yields thorns and thistles. It takes up space in the soil and it causes damage, mark it. And close to, it says, being what? Cursed. So here, get the picture. They're right here in the church, doing church things. And it's hard to tell what's going on until you start seeing fruit. But right there in the church, the whole time, they're right on the edge of being cursed. And here's the thing. They may have more time to repent. If I'm describing your life, you may have some more time to repent. But you only have two certain days, don't you? Today and Judgment Day. Those are your only two certain days, for sure, that you will be aware. But it's hard to tell what's going on, right? And, and maybe they have more time to repent, but they're in so much danger right now. That's the whole point of the passage. They certainly have this moment, but what most likely is going on because of the danger, they end up being burned. And that's hell. Same Same rain. Two kinds of soil. The gospel comes, it comes to the church, it comes with clarity, teaching for repentance, instruction, sanctification. It comes, accomplishes those things in the first group, and the fruit becomes apparent over time. And it doesn't accomplish those things in the second group. And those who are who are believing people, those who have come to Christ, committed their life to Him, are authentic Christians. The rain falls on them, it produces all kinds of fruitfulness and blessing from God. They're involved in the church, they're blessing to others, and then there are those people who understand and know the truth, they can tell you the stories. Here's the thing, beloved, the thing that would scare me the most when my kids were little is they could tell me all the Bible stories, but had no, re- no understanding of why they were there and why it was important that we should learn them. with the spiritual lessons intact, see? So my boys will tell you, they're all adults now, they'll tell you on the way home how many conversations we had about what did you learn today? And, and then they would tell me the story. Why is it important that we know that? What was the reason why the Lord, by, by His Holy Spirit, carried the author along to include that in the Bible? Because it wasn't just random, okay? It wasn't Luke sitting off to the side thinking, you know, that story of Zacchaeus was a really good story. I want to make sure that gets into the Bible. None of that occurred, okay? They were carried along in the breath of God to write what He wanted to write. So why is it there? Very important questions to ask. They can know the story, see? They understand They know the language, but they've resisted the process and they've not repented and they won't submit to the authority of the word. They may even like Jesus. That's possible. But it's a Jesus of their own creation, their own personal one, where you reject all the stuff you don't really like and just hang on to the stuff you really like about Jesus. Jesus isn't personal. In the relationship that you have with Him, yes, His love is expressed to you directly through His substitutionary death for you. But as far as your walk with the Lord, that's universal. You want to walk with Christ? He makes it clear what that's got to look like. You're going to have to lose your life to find it. You're going to carry your cross. You're going to follow me. And the things that happen to me are going to happen to you. And you're going to duplicate yourself. And you're going to do all these kinds of things. Why? Because those are commands. And commands from God are not optional. It's not God's suggestion to you. Commands for God are our responsibility to respond. We don't read God's command to say, God, accomplish that in me. No, the command is to you, and volitionally, by the power of the Spirit, you obey as you understand. So Jesus of their own creation, not the Jesus of the Bible. And you can eventually tell, and of course, they know right now, that second group, that all that comes out of their life is thorns and thistles, absolutely worthless things that end up being burned. Thought life, private life, all those kinds of things that are involved in. Very clear to them, of course, it might not be clear to us, clear to them at first. Ends up being burned. And then the writer speaks to the church after this clear example of the bad soil and how to determine what's going on as you desire to duplicate yourself as you teach faithfully, but you wonder why some don't respond. He says this, he says in verse 9, he says, but beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation though we are speaking in this way. In other words, although we're warning, it's hard to hear that warning, and it certainly makes you take a second look on the inside to see what's going on, which is a biblical concept, by the way. We have better things concerning you in our mind. We're warning you and them of this dangerous place, but we know that's not where you are. Verse 10, For God is not unjust as to forget your work and the love which you have shown towards His name, and having ministered and are still ministering to the saints, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit promise, the promises. See, that's what happens with authentic salvation. Uh, actions that show love to God. And you remember, love to God is not a sentiment. Love to God is obedience, right? Right? He who loves me obeys my commands. That's what Jesus said. That's what God said. You want to show your love to me? This is love. Not that we love God, but he loved us. Sin is the substitution for our sins. You want to express love to God? Obey his commands. That's what it means. Obedience to his word. Ministry. That's diligence and labor. That's what that means. Joyfully imitating the faithful who minister around them and before them. Humble servants. Discerning about sin. Obedient to the word. Those are not only local church examples, the writer says leaders who lead well, examples from Scripture of those who ministered in the past or recorded for us to imitate and follow. Hebrews 11, Hebrews 12, right? Surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us run the race as one to get the prize. There's plenty of examples of what it looks like to walk with the Lord, and those are objective examples. That's what it actually looks like. And this is the group that Timothy is in. So we come back to our passage. We illustrate that passage. We see what to look for to see if it's not the true thing. Why Paul kept bumping into people and he would spend time with them, then they'd betray him or they'd run off and do something else. This is the group Timothy's in. And Paul uses some of these same terms to describe him as we've seen. But that didn't describe everyone in the Ephesian church. In chapter 1 and verse 3, which we'll see, indicates that some were teaching false doctrine. There's some in Ephesus who were teaching falsely. In verse 4, we're going to see this, they were following fables, endless genealogies, getting involved in things that have nothing to do with church or discipleship or growth. Verse 7, and following, and they wanted to teach the law but had no idea what the law was about. Many people who proclaim things, they can't clearly expound on them. They don't understand them. Verse 4, chapter 4, verse 1, they departed from the faith, listening to seducing spirits of demons which just takes in all the philosophies of the world, beloved. Seducing spirits of demons, if you're in a church where they just talk about the philosophies of the world, all of that comes from demons. You realize that, right? Demon spirits, all the philosophies, all the influencers, all the entertainment, all the other attractive things the world pushes, those things are seductive spirits of teachings of demons. Has no business in the church. Chapter 6, verse 20. Some were following profane and vain language. So they're fascinated by that, connected to those kinds of things sensuality, a highly sexualized culture, all those things connected to that. Paul says they think they know important things that she calls the opposite of knowledge. There's whole churches that think they have some secret knowledge, and then they proclaim that to their people. You have secret knowledge. It's important. There's no secret knowledge in the, in the New Testament. It's all open. It was a mystery. Now it's all clear. In fact, you get to the churches in Asia Minor in Revelation 2 and 3, and you find out one of the churches has the thing called secret knowledge, and the Lord rebukes him, says there's no such thing as that. You don't have any of that. You fooled yourself. But here it was in Ephesus. It's the opposite of knowledge. Verse 21, he says, "Harkening back to our time in Hebrews, they've erred concerning saving faith. They don't even know what true saving faith is. They don't express it correctly. Timothy was truly f- saved. In fact, back in 1 Timothy 1, 1 and 2, Paul's addressing Timothy, and he says this about him. He says, God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. Paul uses the plural pronoun to pull Timothy together in with him. That's really so wonderful, isn't it? And we can say that with fellow believers, can't we? God, who is our Savior. They show fruit of repentance. They show fruit of God's work in their life. It's a common Savior. It's a common Christ. He pulls Timothy in. So a true son in the faith, a duplicate, will be truly born again. Not with someone who just plays the game on the fringes. And and before we move on to our second one, our second mark of someone who is a candidate to be discipled, it's important as a parent, and I said I would tell you this as we kind of parallel this to parenthood, it's important as a parent to identify and head off marginal Christianity that is so prevalent today. Just this kind of marginal way to kind of do the churchy thing, but way more influenced by the culture, way more influenced by social media, Way more influenced by the things that the world is saying and not what Christ is saying. Sensuality, profane things, those things are very attractive to marginal Christianity. You need to identify those early in your kid's life. Be aware of what they're reading what they're seeing and what they're doing and talk to them about it. Because it's very easy to get pulled that direction, see. And and as I told you last week, you can be a Christian parent, you can provide everything Christian for them, around them in this little bubble and make sure no worldly things from your perspective are there. But if you don't teach them to read the Word of God and understand it and begin to use that as their own marker for what they should allow in their life and what that filter should look like before they snap a picture or write anything or say anything on social media. If they don't have that filter in place, beloved, all you're doing is just keeping them from it until they get older. But guess what? The world looks really great if you're not born again. And it's very attractive. And that's the direction they're going to go. You got to get that word into them faithfully, like Timothy's mother and grandmother did. He knew what the word of God was at a young age. He, they helped him. He, they helped him to understand what it meant, why it was important that they read it, and it began to make a difference in his life. You got to do that early in your kid's life and model that before them consistently. So, truly born again. Number two, second mark of a true child in the faith will be the individual is obedient to the word. Just obviously, right? But we're going to say it. It's not subjective. That's a valid basis for passing the test that Paul asked the Corinthians to take. It's a valid reason why he picked Timothy. Your life will be characterized by obedience. One who's a true child in the faith, one whom you can teach and be sure they're going to pass on to others what's taught is someone who follows through with obedience. See? Who follows through with obedience. So you can say all the things that the world says, say all the things that, you know, church people say about how they know that they're born again because. You know, they did such and such a thing. But listen, when it comes right down to it, truly born again, it's going to look like it. There's going, to be, there's going to be things in place that indicate they're born again. Secondly, they're going to be obedient to the Word. One who's a true child of the faith, one you can teach. And they are going to pass on to others is obedience. This is why Timothy was so well spoken of not only in the area of his own hometown but the area close to his hometown, other places. Why? Manifested obedience. Even a child, Proverbs says, is known by his ways. He's one who obeys the word. He has the character that's manifest in faithfulness and continuity. When a person's saved, there should be a continual pattern of demonstrating that. And we don't do it perfectly. We still live in this body that has its, has, has its appetites. And we're constantly crucifying the flesh. We desire very much to walk, controlled by the Spirit. But when it comes down to the pattern of life on the long look, okay? because some days, as I've said many times before, some days the only person who knows you're saved at the end of the day is the Lord. You just did such a bad job. I can recognize that. I know you can. But on the long haul, your life is a pattern of obedience. What does the word say? What does it mean by what it says? Now, how does that apply over time that begins to produce a sanctified individual who begins to put to death the deeds of the flesh? 1 Timothy 4, 6, after Paul gives some, gives some instructions to pass on to the church, he says in verse 6, he says, in pointing out these things to the brethren you'll be, here it is, a uh, Good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith. That's it. You're raising young children, they need to be constantly nourished on the words of the faith. Not just superficial, marginal kinds of churchy things, not just making sure they're in the youth group, that's important. Not, making, not just making sure they're there regularly on Sunday, worshiping and being taught by the Word of God, but you're nurturing them. And so he tells Timothy, listen, as you're working in the church and you're developing disciples, you're going to be constantly nourished on the words of the faith, you're going to make sure they are and have sound doctrine, mark, mark this, which you've been following. That's what he says about Timothy. It's indicated in your life. It's the pattern in Timothy that lives true to his doctrine and true to his faith. And, and this is what you want to cultivate in your children. You, you start by requiring that they obey you, the first time as we've gone through our child-rearing class, not 20 times later, but the first time they obey you, and you enforce that obedience by painful consequences administered in love, if they don't, and you reinforce that obedience by rewarding them when they do, just like the Lord deals with you. Because there's painful consequences in life when we don't obey what the Lord says. Is there not? And the ultimate one is to be cast into eternal hell, apart from Christ and the Lord forever. But if you're born again and you disobey the Lord, we come under chastening, right? That indicates we really are born again we live in constant disobedience and there's no chastening on us and we say we're born again then the experience tells the truth but if we're born again we walk in disobedience the Lord chastens us and we do that with our kids painful consequences administered in love if they don't obey and disciplining them you have set them up beloved listen to obey God the bigger picture is when you teach your kids to come in submission to you you are teaching them someday and setting them up properly to be obedient to the Lord. And His commands, like yours, are not burdensome. Therefore, they're good because He loves them and so do you. See. Number three, the third mark of a true child in the faith will be that that individual is marked by sound doctrine. In other words, they're able to articulate the faith and the important tenets of the faith, not just the simple stuff. Okay? Over time, they grow. And they begin to understand what the word says. And they're able to begin to articulate that. In In Ephesus there was a lot of false information swirling around. Paul had to put out of the church, we saw early, two elders who wouldn't stop teaching about the faith incorrectly. And no doubt there were some who had followed their example. But Paul had full confidence in Timothy to be able to discern right from wrong and that's something you want to instill in your children too. You know that they're on the right track. Listen, you can tell this when they're able to listen to something or read something and be able to affirm whether it is biblical or not. At some point as they get older, they should be able to affirm that. Not like, I'm not really sure. The Bible's pretty clear, and if you're reading it and understanding it, you'll begin to be able to articulate that, "No, that's wrong. Here's why it's wrong." He said to Timothy in First in Timothy chapter one, First Timothy 1 3, and three through seven he says, "...as I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines." He throws Timothy right in the deep end. I mean, here's a young man, he comes to this church where he's already had, Paul's already had to put out two elders. He says, hey, wade in there and teach men not to teach strange doctrines in order to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies and give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith." But the goal of our instruction, he says, is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. That's our goal, he says. That's our purpose here, if you go on our website. For some men, staying from the, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they don't understand either what they're saying or what the matters about which they make confident assertion. So Paul lays it out to Timothy. He says, listen, people want to be teachers. They hold on to false doctrine. They don't know it well enough to teach it. Or they go about it in the wrong way, arguing, disputing unimportant things, talking about things that don't matter, and you've got to be able to discern that. And that's what we want. When you want to disciple someone, they have to show that ability. It's similar to the instruction we get from James in James 3.18. The seed whose fruit is righteousness, that's the word of God, is sown in peace by those who make peace. If you want it to sprout, it has to be sown in peace, right? You have to come about it in the right way. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, again, just some illustrations here, as the Bible explains the Bible. 1 Timothy 4:12. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, he says to Timothy. In other words, you're younger than some who are around there, but those older ones perhaps are not teaching the right thing, and you're going to have to say something. But rather in speech and conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself as an example of those who believe. What's an example of those who believe? If you want to look at some marks of what that looks like, What comes out of your mouth? What kind of conduct do you have? What's your love look like? Faith. How about purity? Live out the doctrine you know. That's what he tells Timothy. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, the exhortation and teaching. Don't neglect the spiritual gift. That's a pastoral type of gift that came to Timothy. We'll look at it within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands of the presbytery. ordination, in other words. And then verse 15. Mark this... Take pains with those things, what things? The public reading of Scripture, exhortation, in other words, telling people how they should live and giving the example of what it looks like, and making sure you're following up with it, and using your spiritual gifts in the church. Take pains with these things. And then he says, "Be absorbed with them. What? So your progress will be evidence to all. Everybody's going to know, if you're doing those kinds of things, that you're growing and they'll be growing. Pay close attention to yourself and to your doctrine. That's the word for teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you'll ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Everything is about exhortation and doctrine and teaching and public reading the Scripture. And beloved, modern churches will go months or years without doing any of that. Not a single one of those things will happen in the church, and yet they proclaim themselves to be a church and somehow helping people to grow. And it's surprising to us that the majority of Christians across the country are so shallow, a mile wide and an inch deep, with no understanding of the scripture, no understanding of how they should live. He says, Timothy, these three things, make sure they happen all the time. Give yourself to them, see? And then you'll ensure salvation both for yourself and those who hear you. A true child in the faith is going to have these abilities which will mature as they age. And finally, number four, the fourth mark of a true child in the faith will be that the individual is a humble servant. Timothy certainly demonstrated that it becomes apparent in our children pretty quickly. You have to develop that servant heart because, beloved, church is about being a servant to others, not the church serving you. Church is not a consumer commodity, although most churches set themselves up, many set themselves up as a consumer commodity to to attract people by the things they offer. That is not how the church is set up, and yet we wonder why people come in and just say, well, it doesn't do what I want it to do. Well, really, because that's not really what it's supposed to be. Supposed to come and serve and find a place to invest and use it as a base to learn how to live and then go out and live that way. See, it's 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 not a it's not a consumer commodity. And you teach your children that first of all by modeling before them market your service without complaining about having to do it and then market by serving them and serving others and joyfully, winsomely doing that. Timothy no doubt began to learn this from Eunice and Lois, and Paul continued to form this attribute of Jesus who humbled himself to a servant obedient to death on a cross, right? Let this mind be in you, Philippians chapter 3, 2 and 3. Let this mind be in you, it's also in Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 4, 6, and pointing out these things to the brethren, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of sound doctrine which you've been following. Second 2 Timothy 2:23: 2, "But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. What's it look like to be a humble servant? The Lord's bond servant must not be quarrelsome. Be kind, able to teach, patient when wronged. These are the kinds of attributes when you're looking to disciple someone. These are the things that are going to be in their life in, in, in a greater or lesser measure as they grow, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. In, in Philippians chapter one, verse one. Paul introduces Timothy, what does he say? Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus. Isn't that great? That's his identity. He's a bondservant of Christ. What does it mean to be a bondservant? In the Old Testament, if you were a servant of someone paying off a debt, you got to the point where your debt was paid, they said you're, you're free to go. You've paid your whole debt, you're gone. And the person will say, I don't want to leave. I like serving here, I want to stay, I want to serve you with my life. They take him to the doorpost and they put a hole in his ear with an awl that marked him as a bondservant, someone who was willingly staying there. Paul identifies Christians as what? Willing servants of Christ. You stay because you want to. You desire to serve him. Timothy's not the only one. Colossians 1, 1.7, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow, bond bondservant who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. There's another one. It's not just Timothy. It's not just Paul. It's these other guys Paul's poured his life into. They decided they want to serve Christ too. These are marks, beloved. This is what it looks like to be born again. Not that you walked an aisle sometime in the past. Not that you get emotional during a worship service. Not that you put a, a scripture on social media once in a while and you got some scriptures underlined in your Bible. Those things don't prove or disprove you're born again. What's, what's it look like? It's very objective, isn't it? Again, Colossians 4, 7. To all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother, faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord will bring you information. Here's another guy. Paul poured his life into it, showed forth the fruit of repentance, and then began to grow, and it started to look like a certain thing. And they all resemble each other, don't they? It's not your own personal Jesus. This is, this is how Jesus works. This is what it looks like to follow Him. See, you're losing your life. We know that there were in Ephesus, some leaders and some elders who lacked humility, those whose service was purely to lift themselves up. See, that implied in chapter 3 and verse 6, There were people in Ephesus who liked to argue and discuss things that don't matter, impertinent, they thought they knew everything, they liked to argue, they're full of envy, strife, so forth, want to be seen as great. Big egos really describes a lot of guys who try to do ministry now. They just want to have a public persona. Paul was like the opposite of that. I don't want you to remember me at all. I want you to go out of here. I don't want you to think about me. I want you to think about the Lord. I want you to think about the message that was given to you. I'm a clay vessel. I poured it out into your life. Go out and live it, see? That's what it looks like. We see this too often in young people, too. Impertinence, love to argue, think they know everything. You have to rebuke that tendency in your child. You want to br- bring up a child so you can disciple him and make him a true child of the faith, you got to see that early. That's not the path to godliness for them or anyone around them. You want to raise a true child of faith, then they're going to be humble servants. And beloved Timothy, Timothy learned that, when he, and he was the real deal. He had a humble heart, desired to serve the Lord, Just the fact that we saw last time that he stayed at Ephesus, indicated humble service. He stayed all the way until his death. A very, very difficult place to do ministry, and yet he didn't leave. That's humility. Did he take a lot of abuse? Yes, no doubt. Along with saving faith, obedience to you and to the Word of God, able to discern the truth of sound doctrine over and against the humanistic worldview and a humble servant's heart. Timothy's called, in chapter 6, verse 11, a man of God. Isn't that a wonderful and deep phrase that identifies someone? Isn't that what you want to hear? You want to say that about people that you raise, people that you disciple. They're men and women of God. That's precisely what you want. It's not subjective. It's clear what that looks like. And our mandate, of course, to go and reproduce ourselves a true child in the faith. It's just so clear and something we can apply ourselves to ourselves and to the people we work with in the church and to our children as well. That's bound to be dismissed in prayer at a time. Lord, we thank you today for chance to be in your word. We're grateful today for uh, the love that you have for us, that you have poured that out in your demonstration of your gift of Christ on the cross. And this is the love that you have, not that we loved you, but that you loved us and gave your son as a substitution for us. And so we... We praise you for that. We praise you for lots of things. Our lives are filled with your blessings and the things that you have poured out on us, and, and uh, any, any individual in here could stand up and proclaim how the Lord has blessed them, how you have done that. But Father, we praise you most for your gift of your Son. We thank you that coming to Him in repentance, asking for forgiveness, you have promised to give us eternal life, to let your Spirit Inhabit us to give us the ability to obey your word for the first time, to long to do it, and then to follow through. So what it looks like to be a disciple it means to be a reprint of the one we're following. And Lord, we desire very much to be a reprint of Christ. We want to read your word. Spirit of the living Christ actively wrote it, participates in the understanding of it, and convicts us and encourages us. And Lord, we want to be all about that. So when we read the hard things, Lord, help us help it to do the things it's supposed to do. When we read the the blessings, help us to be encouraged. And most of all, Father, help us to be found obedient, slaves doing your work, bond servants, faithful in all these things that we've done. As we move forward from here, regardless of what, how we acted before, what our life was like before, Father, I pray that um, because you're good and you're new and your mercies are new every morning, that if we've heard something, we understand something here we didn't understand before, today we can act on it. If you've been one of those that's been on the peripheral, on the fringe, uh, all your life in the church, just kind of doing churchy things, but you know you've never repented, you know what your life is really like, you know what kind of fruit has really been born, maybe nobody else knows, let today be the day that you repent. Come to Christ, call out for his mercy, tell him you're sorry for your sin, you want to turn from them, and you want him to save you, and he will. Father, thank you today for your great mercy on us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the time we'll spend as we go out the doors. We'll be bumping into people that will be in our sphere of influence. Help us to love them, our neighbor as ourself, to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Father, then help us to make sure we give them the gospel teaching them to observe everything you've taught us, and you promise to be with us always in that effort. So we thank you for those mandates. We thank you for the clear teaching of the word. We thank you for how we can apply it today. And I pray that you'll do that work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.